Good morning, good morning. You're listening to another episode of Down by Law with your host, Mr. Daryl A. Gray. The fabulous, the famous, the wonderful, the million-dollar mouthpiece, the partner with all of the juice and pizzazz at Wright and Gray Law Firm. We have a very special guest with us, and his story is one of courage and triumph and just just he's just a naturally amazing leader mr mark raymond mr raymond good morning good morning thank you for having me today how are you today sir oh i'm living a dream brother mark i'm gonna say this to you man before we dig into who you are as a person and and what you have um, done for the city of new orleans i count you as a friend i think um, i'm fortunate to have you as a friend i believe in everything you've done um me knowing you and seeing the the growth and the trajectory by which you're uh, progressing through life with so much meaning and, and, and direction is just wonderful. So I want to give you a kudos here now today before we start talking about how how amazing of a situation you've created for the city of New Orleans. Well, thank you, brother. It's uh, It's been a journey and uh, I'm glad that I've been blessed to be able to do what I've done these last you know, I guess in my life now. Yeah, Mark. Let's, and we're gonna. I'm gonna give a little bit of information for you, for the listening audience. But then I want to dig into. Um, I want to let you to kind of take it away. But you have some very deep seated roots in history here in the city of New Orleans. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So I come from four very large families. Um, the most notable is the Turo family. AP Turo is my great grandfather. Uh, senior or junior? Senior. Senior, okay. Senior. Um, civil rights pioneer. For a long time, the only black practicing attorney in the state of Louisiana. Um, fighting segregation and inevitably desegregating a lot of the public spaces that we're so familiar with today. Um, well, I think, you know, by me being a, a lawyer, AP Turo's name is synonymous with um, change and he's a giant in our profession uh because of everything that you just talked about some of the stuff you talked about um he was he picked up the charge and did something that was necessary for us to be in a position to live a a life of freedom and, and equality and you know obviously you know we got streets named after him i think our uh you know, one one of the our what is it? Not Martinette. I'm sorry. Something we have different organizations, things of that nature, named after him, and that's just that's a testament of who he was. But that that was actually your great grandfather. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. The beauty of that story is that his wife was actually the breadwinner. His wife was a pharmacist. Wow. She put all of her brothers and sisters through high school and college, and then all of her her kids. So he had the flexibility to chase his passion. Wow and make all of these changes because of the black woman that was, you know, the head of the household, right? Um, It's amazing. That's crazy. You know, you think about that, too, because of the lasting effect of his legal work Mm -hmm. on the city of New Orleans, the state, the country, really, to be honest, because he was riding the wave of that civil rights movement that, you know, Thurgood Marshall and all these people that we hear about. Um, he's famous for that. You know, he's known nationwide for that. But if not for him having a supportive wife who was there to, who understood what his assignment was and gave him the, the financial support and stability to to take on that charge, we, you know, we probably wouldn't be what we are. 
so I always describe it as like the civil rights war was fought on three fronts. You had the Martin Luther Kings, you had the Malcolm X's, and then you had the people fighting the battles to change the laws. Right. Right. Actually in the courtrooms making the arguments. And Brown versus Board of Topeka, Kansas was like that pivotal, um, the precipice of change. Right. right. That allowed him to come back and get Rudy Bridges in school, get AP Turo Jr. to be the first um, African-American undergraduate student at LSU. Right. So many of them. I mean, all of the stories that I hear about and it's like so I grew up walking kind of in that the shadow from a family perspective, trying to understand the gravity of it um, and then going to Brother Martin. And I remember doing presentations about him and it was like it they didn't really you know, the white students didn't really understand why it was so important, not just to me from a family history perspective, but to what we need from a societal perspective, right? This, and now especially in this age of like DEI, right? Diversity, equity, and inclusion. inclusion yeah. I tell everybody diversity is not all black, right? No. Um, equity and inclusion is not all black. It is getting everybody to the same playing field with the same access of resources and the same access to opportunities. That's what he fought for, right? And I think that's the overwhelming um emotion i tried to lead with now from the disability lens right and we're gonna definitely get more into that because you know framing out who you are and your your life's mission at this point uh, from a historical standpoint of what your family has meant to the city of new orleans and the changes that were that were brought about and like you said you're following in that footstep in the footsteps of your of your uh great grandfather and your grandfather who was you know did some of the, some similar things that's that's a very important way of establishing how important your foundation is split second foundation and how how you've taken on a charge for uh, helping uh, the disabled here in in the city of New Orleans and statewide I'm assuming that's just that's your overall goal and mm-hmm. mission so um, let's talk a little bit more about who you are Mark and your background and education and all of this stuff so I went to Brother Martin High School, graduated in 2006. Uh, my senior year was Katrina year, and that was the first, my first true encounter with adversity from a perspective of a life-changing event. Mm-hmm. Um, because of Katrina, I decided to stay here close to family and go to college where I attended Xavier and inevitably got a degree in chemistry um, with minors in physics and biology and math. Um, once I graduated, I, I didn't want to work in a lab. I, the lab was too confined for me. And my father had a background in, uh, in television. So I started working with him doing Pelicans games, Saints games, and inevitably built, um, a national profile. And I was traveling around the country doing festivals and wow. MMA fights, um, as a broadcast engineer up until, um, I was 27 and um, it's actually a pretty good segue into like my accident what happened uh, July 4 2016 it was uh, the weekend right after Essence Fest in 2016 mm-hmm. right so Friday I flew back home from a week of work doing a festival and this was one of the first times I didn't have to work Essence Fest right <laughs> so I get back I'm ready to have some fun hang out with my friends uh, had a girlfriend at the time 
get back, have a great weekend. And Monday was supposed to be like that chill, you know, 4th of July right. on the lake day before we all get back to respective lives yeah, and work real life. on Tuesday. And so, um, man, on some, I was at Punch Train Beach. Punch Train Beach is about two blocks from my house. Mm-hmm. I, I literally could walk there from, from where I live right now. Um, you know, at the end of, you know, so it was a place that I grew up swimming at. Right. And I felt like it was like my backyard. It was home. Right, right. Um, and because of that comfort level was why I was diving in the water in the first place, just to give context. Uh, I will add for my mother, if she had been there, she probably would have beat me over the back of my head if she had seen me, you know, dive off the back of a boat into some water I couldn't see the bottom of, right? But the risk the 27 year old you know we're uh we're high risk individuals absolutely and so um towards the end of our little stay there around five o'clock uh i dove off the back of my buddy lance's boat not realizing that the tide had dropped and so the depth of the water had changed from you know whatever to a foot and a half wow uh dove in hit my forehead on the sandy bottom and I didn't knock myself out when I did it, but I was face down in the water. And I remember like trying to shake it off and I tried to move and I couldn't. And now I'm laying flat with my arms spread and I'm, I try to shake it off and move again. And I, and I couldn't. And that's when like the panic sets in, you know, I started like trying to look around to see if anybody was splashing towards me or noticed. And, um, and they didn't, and, you know, I started thinking about my mom and, you know, oh, my God, I'm going to die. And my mom is going to devastate her and my family. And all, all I remember was praying, um, praying that my friends, you know, realized something was wrong, that I couldn't move and that they saved me. But I but I drowned, and um, I woke up three and a half weeks or two and a half weeks later at UMC in a room full of machines beeping wow. on a vent. Um you know, it was a hell of a life-changing experience. Um, but that was the – that was my second chance. Hmm. And, you know, I've always – as our relationship has, has grown, I knew you before the accident, um, seeing you now. And as we sit here today, the level of positivity that you have in spite of the, the situation, the physical – uh, situation that you're in is the same as it was before the accident. So I want to know how did you, and this was in 2016, right? Mm-hmm. Summer two, July 4th, 2016. So you being the kind of person that you were when I first met you, before you, uh, before you, and 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 tell us what what you actually what the actual injuries were. You you broke your your vertebrae. Break. I broke the C5 vertebrae in my neck. The bone put pressure on my spinal cord at that point, causing paralysis from about my chest level down. So I have some arm function, mm-hmm. but not like true hand dexterity. Uh, I can feel on on like the radial side of my arm, but not the back side, mm-hmm. because that's where the nervation splits from the C5 to C6 level. Um, so waking up in the hospital into that new experience, it was like, Somebody telling me I died. Well, right. Um, I was a positive person. I was always, 
you know, out in the streets or just happy. I was loving life. And loving life. Living my best Great, one. great guy. Like, you're still a great guy, but just in terms of me knowing you and, you know, it's a testament to the kind of person that you are because 2016, you have this life-altering experience and coming full circle now is 2022 and you've created a, a foundation to help people like you, but there was a process from when you had to come to the realization, like, my life has changed. Yeah. And what was that like? What was that process like for you? It was grieving. It was me literally grieving the death of my old life um, and accepting it. And just like, you know, any grieving situation, losing a loved one, it's a process, right? So that first year for me was the hardest. And because I was looking at everything in my surroundings, thinking about what I would be doing if I was, right. you know, the same mark, right? Or looking at old girls, you know, running the streets and still trying to, like, be in the streets, but not being able to be the same. Um, it was tough. And there were a lot of moments where I was, you know, I would tell my mom, I don't want to live this life. Like, this isn't what I, this wasn't what I had in mind. Um, I had to come to an acceptance with this situation and it took me about two years. And I'll tell you what really pushed me to like initially find my light was when I left New Orleans in July of 2017 to go to Sacramento and participate in this like fitness based rehab program Mm -hmm. where they, they weren't therapists. They were exercise physiologists and exercise specialists that challenged the norm, challenged the doctrine that therapists have been taught about what recovery looked like for people post, post-injury. Mm-hmm. What I found in that place wasn't just fitness, though. I found a community. I found people like me that were willing to challenge it, right, right? and be their own light and then you know, give me advice and r- really be my community. And what I didn't realize at the time was like I was dealing with the isolation here not having people around me that would like me that understood what i was going through knew how to talk to me knew how to connect me with the right resources because it was a quality of life issue right right and that was where to your point like i found i found my light lifeline and uh i you know the the, the challenge there was i was paying a hundred dollars an hour going to this program two hours a day five days a week so I was burning through cash. Um, so inevitably, I had to come back. But, you know, my whole – once I figured it out, it was I was asking them, like, how they did it, how did they structure stuff, because I knew I was coming back here to start one. Right, right. And that's a, that's another thing, too. You know, for, for the – in a greater conversation, you take somebody with your level of intelligence and your brilliance and going through such a devastating, life-altering uh, situation that a lot of people they they get mired in the depression that comes from that and they can't find their way out of that but you were able to uh, dig in and figure out how do I become the new Mark Raymond mm-hmm. you know and I think I think that program was able to show you that there was a path forward and not only did you take that experience to benefit your own life but you you also came back which like you said with the mindset like you know what this is what i gotta do Mm -hmm. this is what's going to be 
great for the city of New Orleans because there are other people that are dealing with this situation just like I am. And I, I think with your foundation, Split Second Foundation, uh, you found a way of creating a great ecosystem for growth for people who are suffering suffering from these kind of um, situations. I don't hate to call it disabilities because, you know, it's just one of those things where you have to find a way of, of being a human being, yep. based, regardless of the scenario and, and the situation that you're surrounded in, that you're living in. So let's let's talk about that. You came back from this program in Sacramento and you started Split Second Foundation. And tell tell us a little bit about that. So to segue too, it was truly a, a testament to my support system. My mom quit her job and was able to take care of me. And I constantly had people like you around me, like, pushing me and motivating me and telling me life was going to be okay. Right? So it had been like I had been brainwashed by everybody around me pushing me. Yeah, yeah. You know, to like. That's love. Love. Right? (laughs) (laughs) That's not brainwashed. That's love. (laughs) Um, To, like, to think bigger and and accept this and, and figure out what I could do with it. And this was the manifestation of that, coming back, starting Split Second Foundation and beginning that work. Um, so I, I came back in October of 2017, like, with this energy, right? Like, I, I know what I got to do. I know how I want to do it. And now it's just getting it done. I'd never started a nonprofit. had no idea how to run one. <laughs> um, me and Daniel Victory were sitting outside of Victory one day, and I was, I was like, man, I don't know what I'm going to call it. He was like, Dude, call it split second. Your life changed in a split second. Wow. Anybody's life can change in a split second. Wow. And I looked at him. I was like, <laughs> that's it. <laughs> Brilliant. Right there. Brilliant. Right there. Just, just, <laughs> Cut that's and simple. print. <laughs> <laughs> right? So we now we got the name. And then I started meeting with some other nonprofit leaders in the community. Like, all right, what do I do next? How do I get this going? And they were like, well, it's a relatively simple process, but it's a lot of work. I was like, ah, I'm not worried about the work. They were like, okay, everybody says that. I was like, yeah, I'm not everybody. Um, Clearly. <laughs> so, like, I, I met with Melissa, who uh, who's the executive director of Yelp. I met with Sonny, um, Joan. Son, at, Sonny, who, who you got to Sonny, uh, son of a saint. Son of a saint. There you go. Sonny, uh, Sonny, Shout Sonny out Vivian to Sonny. Lee. Shout out to Sonny. Um, and, and they just gave me, like, some really, some really great advice on what it was going to take for me to to do this and and do it right. Um, so we found in April of 2018, what I knew I had was a network mm-hmm. and that I could do, I could have fundraisers. Right. I wasn't worried about raising money. I wasn't worried about, um, like, even getting people in the community to see that this was a huge need. I just knew that I needed to figure out what the start was. And... Like, from an entrepreneurial lens, what I've seen so much from people with great ideas is they don't know how to start, right? And I just started. I was terrified, but I was like, forget it. I'm, I'm right. going for it. Um, so we founded Split Second in April 2018 with a mission to break barriers for people with disabilities. And, you know, this is, a, I think, again, we don't understand until, until we are um, – presented with the actual numbers, the data. You're talking about 20, almost 21 million people Mm -hmm. who suffer from some kind of uh, ambulatory disability, right? That's a pretty sizable population. And when you start talking about, you know, the the access to the health care, the mental health um, 
things that people deal with, just, you know, going in and out of the stores, all these different aspects of life that these that, that people are going to be challenged with when they have some kind of disability like we're talking about, that's huge. Right. And how do we make their life as normal, quote unquote normal? And I don't I mean, because it's normal for them. You know, everybody's life is normal for them. But how do we give them access to everything that everybody else has? Right. And I think, you know, when you start looking at it from that standpoint, having somebody like you creating this kind of foundation really gives us a glimpse of what the concerns are. Because you, you never know. You never you never really see outside of yourself. We have we, we, we have that pretty, pretty bad. And and uh, as human beings, like we don't look outside of ourselves because we're so concerned with what we deal with on a day-to-day basis but there are people who have challenges that you can't put your mind around so let me touch on that because you're i started this because of my personal experience and then i had to zoom out and look at spinal cord injury as a whole as i learned about like just that facet of paralysis and disability i was amazed at how much research and stuff was going on in the space then i zoomed out and saw ambulatory disability as more of a Mm. A bigger space, right? People who've had strokes, people who've had uh, traumatic brain injuries, and you're right. So, and then I zoomed out one more time to look at disability as a whole, right? Right, and learned about sensory and the cognitive disabilities that people have. So, disability now, like the way I look at it now, one in four people in America are considered disabled, whether that's from a sensory, cognitive, or physical disability. Wow. Wait, now, expand upon it, those those uh, different uh, levels of disability, the categories of disability. So, sensory is all of the, your sensation and your uh, perception, uh, sight, hearing, touch, right? So, people who are blind and deaf. And then you've got cognitive, kids with developmental disabilities, mm-hmm. with autism, with uh, traumatic brain injuries or brain defects as they evolve. Right. And then you've got uh, – and then in those buckets, too, are uh, like cancer and how that affects people mm-hmm. um, and different diseases. Um, we see in Louisiana more physical than anything, right? Um, and they typically – like most – people encounter disability later on in life, be it from, you know, Louisiana's from diabetes or heart, you know, heart mm-hmm. issues, uh, pulmonary issues because we're not working out enough. Uh, we're not eating the right foods. We like to drink. We like to hang out. We like right. to smoke. Um, so Louisiana's numbers are actually worse than the country. We're one in three people in Louisiana are considered disabled. Um, and we lead the country in diabetic amputations. Wow. And to your point about access and lack of access, it's mostly black and brown people. I was just going to get into that, like the minority aspect of it when you start talking about these um, disabilities. You know, I know it's huge. And you've, you've, you've kind of discovered that, and I know you, you're doing things to change it. Well, what we, what we discovered um, was that it was an a education barrier as much as it is an access barrier. Um, we just, you know, healthcare wasn't really promoted in the black community as much as alcoholism and tobacco use and everything else was. Right. Right. So as people were facing these things and now had these addictions, um, associated with, with that usage, right now you're like confronting that and then trying to get people to change their normal habits when they don't have healthy foods around them. Right. 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 Or they're not seeing it. Like, we're brainwashed 
with alcohol advertisement, tobacco <laughs> advertisement. We're not brainwashed with health advertisement, right? That's true. You know, you don't see a yoga poster on every corner, but <laughs> they got a, a, a corner store with some liquor ads and cigarette ads, right? Absolutely. Um, so I started looking at it from a from a lens of advocacy, and then when we opened uh, Split Second Fitness last year, we started thinking more holistically about how we could be preventative in this space, really, and, and helping people push um, to take their medicines, to eat better if they do have some of these conditions. If you got a little weight on, take a little weight off, right? Mm-hmm. Like um, thinking more, you know, how do we, how do you love yourself? And how do you love yourself enough to get out of your own way? And I'm, I am like, you know, I'm, I'm a work in progress too. I, you know, growing up here, I started drinking young, you know, partying in college on this campus um, to now like really trying to be conscious about how often I'm drinking, how often I'm spending time in the streets. Because another thing, like every lunch meeting I go to is like right. you get a 25 cent martini at lunchtime. Oh, man, you know? That's a New Orleans thing if I've ever seen it, man. <laughs> you know, that's something we got to we, we deal with a lot. There's a lot of temptation there. A lot. Um, but to talk about the impact, too, that I've seen. Um, so let me back up a little bit. So we did some fundraisers. COVID put a halt on us moving forward with the fitness plans as quickly as we wanted to. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I didn't end up signing a lease on space until November of 2020. Um, between November 2020 and opening, which was February 15, 2021, I hired the director who was my physical therapist in the hospital. Wow. Her name's Quinteria. She's got 11 years clinical experience both in the inpatient and outpatient side working with the neuro population so she knew the people right we hired two individuals one with a kinesiology background one who had a professional sports background to be our exercise specialist and because of the way the time frame that we had we had time to train them we had time for Q to create modules and actually teach them about different diagnoses, mm. how to how to exercise with them. Now, here's the impact. Since we've opened, we've seen, which has been about a year and six months now, we've seen over 120 clients with 12 different diagnoses. Wow. Um, spinal cord injury, stroke, traumatic brain injury, cerebral palsy, muscular dystrophy, uh, and there's seven other ones that I can't rattle off as fast. But the bulk have been <laughs> stroke and spinal cord injury. Um as you would imagine, you know, because of our um, these these um, these these preconceived conditions that are around us that lead to stroke. Right. Right. Eighty um, percent of the clients that we serve live on some type of state or federal subsidy like Social Security, Medicaid, Medicare. Uh, and because of that, this was something that I knew. We charge $50 a month for our services. For that membership, they get access to the facilities and two one-on-one sessions a week with one of the exercise specialists, which is really an $850 a month value. It's huge. I subsidize the cost of that program by throwing our gala every year. Right. And, you know, that that those fundraisers and that galas have, has really driven all of the work that I've been able to do in this advocacy space um and making the impact now seeing like what we've created is much bigger than just fitness we've created a community space where people come and get emotional support mental healing and they feel like they are holistic very holistic 
And that's very important because, like you talked about, you know, the the challenges that you deal with from a emotional standpoint, a mental standpoint of dealing with a disability. Because, again, you start, you're talking about people, you know, you're providing a service and a, uh, a safe space, great ecosystem for minority folks who are on these governmental uh, subsidy programs like Medicaid and things of that nature. You know, that's that's very limiting in terms of if you don't have money, you don't have the, 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 you don't have the resources, you don't have the access to the same programming that a lot of people would, would have. So being able to help them navigate that from a holistic standpoint, it really brings you back to life. It puts you in a, in a framework of, yeah, I can live with this. Yeah, I can, I can you know, make adjustments that are going to allow me to be myself so to speak, you know, and that's very important. And that's why, you know, I want to talk about some of the the advocacy that you guys have taken on, what your goals are in terms of that aspect of it and bringing, you know, some attention and some uh, and sh- sh- uh, shining light on, on what people deal with. So from that perspective, the impact is, you know, from going to any physical fitness program, stronger bones, better cardiovascular health, better pulmonary, better digestive the other impacts, though, are better emotional help, um, better mental awareness, better access to resources, and the outcomes, to your point, are better improved quality of life. Right. Um, pushing Louisiana forward in this conversation around health. Right. Every year we're ranked, you know, 49th or 50th in the country right. when it comes to health. Right. And, um, you know, how do we move forward with that? How do we make sure people have everything that they need at home, you know, equipment-wise. Like, this wheelchair costs $50,000, you know, and insurance could deny you who's going to help fight that insurance company to show and that that they need it, right? right. So now me building coalition of, of attorneys who can do that work pro bono for people that need it, right? Um, man, and, and from an advocacy position, so now I'm the, the chairman of RTA, and since I've been on the board, I've been pushing them to think more intentionally about accessibility, about how we treat um, people who need help the most, and That's huge, making man. the system as accessible as possible. Because historically, New Orleans is just a challenging city. It's, a, it's, it's an old city. Yeah. And, you know, the, the buildings are old. You know, obviously you start talking about it. I want you to get more into the details of some of the changes you've made as uh, in, through your position, the, ch- the changes you've, you've championed through your position as uh, chairman of RTA. Um, the streetcars, you know, we all of this stuff that makes New Orleans quaint and, and memorable and, you know, some of our great characteristics. When you start talking about um, accessibility, you know, that's a different kind of conversation. So tell us a little bit more about that. So – one of the biggest issues that I had prior to being a board member as just a rider was it would take me 25 minutes to schedule a ride sometimes. Mm-hmm. I got to call in. I'm on hold for a long time. And I have to schedule my ride 24 hours in advance. Wow. Right? As soon as I got on the board, we we solved some of those issues. Now it's much quicker. Um, but now inter- interjecting technology into that, too, to make that experience much um much more efficient. Right. Another thing was the accessible streetcar. Now, that was stemmed from a lawsuit. Um, but when I got on the board, I was like, why are we fighting this lawsuit? That mm-hmm. doesn't make any sense. I'm sure we can retrofit some streetcars that are 
still have that historic look, but provide access, right? right. Like, why are we fighting the ADA at this point? Um, another big thing is like the the um, the bus stops themselves mm-hmm. are inaccessible at times. Um, so we've directed our staff to conduct a accessibility feasibility study to understand what it would take to make sure that everything was as accessible as possible uh, and pushing this universal design. Um, And now we're actually piloting what on-demand transit will look like in New Orleans. Uh, This pilot is called the Move Pilot. It's being conducted in New Orleans East, uh, where basically we're using Uber technology to get people around in a certain zone in the east, but it's it's curb to curb pickup. Wow, you know that's the thing too. I think that uh, when you start talking about accessibility and disability, as technology advances, you have more and more options to make life um, to open up some different spaces and that people deal with on a day to day basis. And have you? How are you looking at technology? What are some of the changes? and some of the aspects of technology that you're looking at now and what do you perceive to come down a pipeline in the future that's going to be beneficial to to people? I think for the longest, transit agencies have had a macro lens. How do I move as many people, you know, with one, with a bus as possible? Right. Now we're looking at micro transit and on-demand options and anticipating what autonomous vehicles will be able to do in this space to change the entire mm-hmm. rider experience, right? Right. Um, technology is is moving faster than policy will ever be able to Correct. govern, right? So seeing how some of these technology companies are already, like, thinking about autonomous vehicles and what that could look like, it's like we are we're trying to zoom out and look at that lens while also, you know, it's like looking at the forest but knowing you got a tree coming up, <laughs> so I got to get back behind the wheel, but... Um, we're just really, really, I'm trying to push them to be as innovative as possible. Right. And think about like the future of New Orleans where we still have this huge wealth divide between black and white people. The majority of your, your downtown hospitality workforce is, you know, low income and live in the East. Mm -hmm. How do I get them to jobs more efficiently and, you know, and quicker? It takes too much time right now. They're taking too many transfers. Right. Um, so we're being really intentional in that lens and thinking and prioritizing people who need it the most. I think another big thing that I'm, I'm pushing is for us to tell our stories. You see new buses on the street with a new look, right? right? You see new paratransit vehicles. RTA has undergone a major shift where now we are a completely public organization where we used to be, um, we used to contract all of our services out mm-hmm. uh, the administration the maintenance and the operations of rta and uh, we need to do a better job of telling that story to build trust back with this community that you can put your kids on the bus right you know if you pop open this app it's accurate so you don't have to just go to the bus stop and wait right you can stay inside this building and it's going to tell you what time you need to leave to get to that bus stop and how long it's going to take for you to get to your destination hmm. right great stuff Big changes, and so, and that's important too, you know, because like you said, it, it gives it, it gives you a level of predictability 
but it also it also is a holistic approach again to to making life easier for people to live here in New Orleans if they you know if you don't have means because a lot of people here that don't have cars and that's been a historic thing too. New Orleans is such a unique place to where is it's similar to to New York or Chicago. People you know they didn't they didn't really gravitate towards this huge car owning uh, population like you see in most of American cities, but the living in the city requires you to have access to good public transportation. Exactly. And New Orleans is built like that because this is how the city was designed. So uh, the fact that you are having, you guys are having that conversation as the uh, the board or the commission for RTA is huge for the future of the city. We just got to keep pushing it. Right now is a, a great space because of the infrastructure that's monies that are coming down from mm-hmm. the federal government, right? With the, um, with the, 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 the legislation that, Joe Biden just signed, you know, so there's a huge opportunity for us to expand in the, the infrastructure and the transportation space. And I'm excited for the future. Mark, you've you've made so many strides and you've you've achieved so many different things. Your accomplishments uh, since your accident in 2016 are insane. Like I'm looking at the fact that you've been uh, you're 40 under 40 for the gamut gambit uh, New Orleans magazine one to watch. Um, Xavier University, forty under forty. Did you go to Xavier? I did. Man, like, what, what, what other, what am I missing? What other uh, accolades am I missing? I actually just did an article with Forbes. I did an article wow. with Men's Health magazine. So, seeing, uh, feeling recognized and seen and and validated in the space that other people are also like, you know, really giving attention to, has been humbling. Do you feel like it's been a long time? No. It hasn't, man. Like you've accomplished so much in short in such a short period of time. And and you guys still gotta consider the fact we went through COVID. Right. You know what I mean? Like you've been able to really carve out a space for you that is so beneficial to so many other people because you're doing it for, for for everybody else. What I try to the way that I try to lead is to get people to the middle and to get people to a common space. Like I remember when when George Floyd um, was murdered and the world kind of blew up around that in the middle of COVID, I was trying to figure out how I could be helpful while still staying out of the way because I'm in one, that population group that could have been you know fatal if I got COVID, and so I came up with creating a petition to get streets renamed, right? right. Um, starting with Jefferson Davis to Norma C. Francis. I just remember calling, I called Helena Moreno, Councilwoman Helena Moreno. I called my mentor, Flozell Daniels, and was just like, man, I think now's a good time to, like, talk about how cosmetic white supremacy and racism is. Uh, I mean, it's so blatant, like, it's on our streets. It's brainwashed in us. Right. Right? Like, I still refer to Norman C. Francis Parkway at times. Jeff Davis. Because that's how I grew up. Same thing for Robbie Lee, Lee Circle. You know, that's that's like you said, it's deeply ingrained in our culture. Mm-hmm. And to to recognize it, because that is it's such a gateway traumatic experience that you have to think about from a kid's perspective. Because when you name something a public space after somebody, street, whether it be a street, a park, a building, anything of that nature, if you erect a a monument to that person the inquisitive human human mind automatically goes to why was this person 
famous? What is he famous for? What is she famous for? And when you start to do that kind of research and you understand those are monuments to white supremacy, the, the detrimental effect to the to the minority population, to those children, those developing minds, is is insane and, and it's critical. So the fact that you took that upon yourself to make those changes, and this is all like after your injury, like these are the major, major shifts in uh, New Orleans and the, the culture and the history of our city that you took on um, after a, a major life-changing uh, situation for yourself and again it goes back to i mean I, I mean you know you're supposed to do that that was your that was your that's what you come from <laughs> you know what i mean that's in your dna right you know but that's huge man like that's that's full circle really because ap turo started fighting for for equality yep. and you know fighting through a, a lot of racism and things of that nature and, and full coming full circle you're able to Pick up that mantelpiece and, and and move move the conversation even further. So that's huge. So tell me tell me about that. I mean, tell me about the process and the commission that you were on and and um, that you're still on, I guess. And how how's all it uh, taking place? And what what did you guys do to to make some of those changes? So I wanted to leverage public perception to push city leadership to see that this change needs to happen now. And after I launched that first petition, it got 10,000 signatures like in two days. Wow. Right? So I had already had the support of the city council vice president. Now I'm giving her the fuel that she needed to say, okay, yeah, we need to do this like now. And she acted immediately. And Kudos. I, some other council members had already been thinking like, okay, how do we do this more holistically though instead of just doing one-offs? So shout out to Kristen Palmer and Jay Banks for creating the – Street Renaming Commission, um, Councilmember Moreno appointed me as her representative and for the for everyone's education. So each council member had a representative, the CPC had a representative, and the mayor had a representative. So it was nine of us total on mm-hmm. the Street Renaming Commission. Um, Carl Connor was our chairperson. Love Carl. Carl's Good amazing. Friend. Great uh, great leader. Brilliant Shout out to guy. Carl. Shout out to Carl Connor. Um, and I think after like our second meeting, I had, I had gone to the second meeting with like this whole plan around a policy dictating how we were what streets were going to be targeted. Mm-hmm. Right? Because I knew we needed, you know, we needed to have stuff written down on why we were doing X to achieve Y. Right. Um, after that meeting, they were like, Mark, you should be the vice chair. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, okay, yeah, that, let's do it. Um, and so the commission's work was set for a year for us to study the city and specifically pick out streets wh- who were honoring Confederate soldiers uh, for the renaming process. In that we found, I believe it was 36 streets, parks, and places um, named to honor Confederates in, in that movement, um, including Tulane, Paul Tulane, who was the money behind the Confederate movement, right? Again, People wars are fought on three sides. You had the soldiers, you had the leaders, and then you had the money. You got the money, that's right. <laughs> right? Uh, so Paul Tulane was, was the was the financier of the Civil Rights War. I'm sorry. Civil, the Civil, Civil War. War. Yeah. The Civil Confeder- War. The Confederate side. Yes. Wow. And so, um, you know, through that education process, we um, we enlisted a ton of researchers from different universities. I believe it was 60 in total who um, who identified these streets and then gave us recommendations for each street. 
um, I believe it was three recommendations per street for the commission to actually choose from. And we all, you know, we were each representing a district and, you know, trying to have as much community engagement in this process as possible. Um, But, you know, it was a lot of work. And especially um, like Robert E. Lee and the Lakeview streets, just getting people past the, well, I don't want to change my street name. I don't want to have to go through that process of getting my my bank account changed and all my mail changed and – you know, it, we got some some folks, you know, at the at the Lakeview meetings that were like, I don't know what you're talking about. Robert E. Lee was a hero. Okay, we have a difference of opinion. Yeah, that's man. a difference of opinion, period, point blank. But majority's going to rule here. You know, and that was just simply like we had to eat a little bit of crow to make a little bit of good. And right. uh, now looking at the fruit of that labor, um, Norman C. Francis Parkway, Allen Toussaint Parkway, Harmony Circle, and uh, a slate of streets still to be renamed, like it's just been it's been great to be a part of that. Um, even seeing a change in council leadership mm-hmm. that have picked up that work and continued it. Right, right, you know, right. Because politics, don't get it twisted. Politics always plays a part in it. Absolutely, but like you said, though, it, the the overall consensus that. That's something that needs to be addressed and addressed the way that it's being addressed is huge because, again, this is about always moving the, the situation forward and and, and and righting past wrongs. Mm-hmm. And if you don't understand how those names of public spaces, uh, streets, parks, you know, that's important mm-hmm. to make sure that people understand, like, there's there's a sense of community that has to be championed yep. and in order to do that you have to make you know make sure that you understand all of the all of the past hurts and harms that people have gone through to move this conversation and move our, our culture forward so that's that's huge um and you know one of the things too that i think is so big some of the names that you guys selected to and when you in the renaming process like you know norma c francis you can tell everybody who that is and uh what he means to the city of New Orleans. Man, Norman C. Francis is still the longest-serving president of a university in American history. Wow. Um, to He was one of my grand, my great-grandfather's mentees, too. So I remember as a Xavier student, like, I would see Dr. Francis on campus, and I'd turn the other way. Because <laughs> if I saw him, you know, like, it was like, oh, man, I, I don't, I don't want to get called out right now. You know, ain't no telling. Like, uh, let, me, let me go the other way. <laughs> but he was just one of those figures that, like, you revered, you right. know, and, and respected. Um, what he built with um, with Alden McDonald and Liberty Bank and what he meant to this city, to the African-American community, and championing, championing education, I mean, it was so critical. And those same principles were, again, passed down from the people before him. Right. You know, my great-grandfather in, in his time. So... Seeing it again, all like full circle, it just it it made so much sense for me to push it. Um, Alan Toussaint was another one, a global ambassador of New Orleans. You know, everywhere he went, he spoke about the beauty of this city, the beauty of its culture, of its people. Um, Standard flag bearer, absolutely for the culture of New Orleans. And I mean, he just made sense. And with Lee Circle, initially we were going to honor a person there, mm-hmm. and it just felt too singular. You know, uh, we had a, a meeting specific about that, and initially I proposed Leah Chase, and it had a lot of support, 
Uh, it was like Leah or Dorothy May Taylor. And then something just like clicked. It was like, this needs to be bigger than that. Because the space is so massive. Right. right? When you, you don't realize how big it is because you're so used to looking up and seeing one person on a pedestal. Right. <laughs> when we really need to honor people, you know, on the ground floor. And it gives us an opportunity to make a circle where harmony exists and honor everybody. Look, and b- before we before we go, I want to I want to do a quick segue into again we're going full circle with Split Second Foundation, the new the gala that you guys have on what date? October twenty second. We're having our second annual show of Love Gala. This year's theme is Love is a Verb, and it's the embodiment of all the work that we've done on this community. Um, and the the true show of love that you're going to see at this event is us gifting a wheelchair accessible van to a family in need. Again, these pieces of equipment are so uh, so expensive at times and most people are, um, it's out of reach for most people. So for us to be able to gift this to a family and collect information on other families who need resources is going to be super impactful. But we're also going to show our future plans for Split Second Foundation at this event. Tell us about that. So I've been quietly working to acquire the old Valina C. Jones school building in the 7th Ward. It has a a tremendous history with me because my great-grandfather founded it. Hmm. All of his children went to it. uh, And it's been vacant since Hurricane Katrina. It's 60,000 square feet. And it will become a beacon for this community, for people who have had or gone through something to go to, to get connected with resources, to have that additional fitness support, to get connected with mental health professionals. But we're also going to have living opportunities in the space because there's a huge shortage of accessible living space, right? So for us to be able to, I'm going to show a video at the event, you know, really talking through the plans, talking about the history. Uh, we, I got some beautiful drone footage a couple of days ago. I'm just, wow. I'm really excited to be like pushing all of this work forward. That's absolutely amazing. It's such a full circle situation in terms of, you know, not only your family history, um, and your family's uh, dedication to the city of New Orleans and making it a better place, but to come full circuit in terms of your life-altering um, experience in 2016 to where we are now um, and you guys raising money uh, to to put both of those situations that, that you've experienced and, and your, your life history together in one. That's huge. I think just as universal uh, connectivity at Man, that point. Man, let me tell you, the, we've built this off of community support, from small donations. So if there's one thing that I can impress on your listeners is that a $20 donation goes a far way with us. $20 a month goes even further, right? But we want to be able to, if this happened to you tomorrow, if a situation happened to you, you got me to call. Right. You got us to come to. And that's what we're building. Like we are, the healthcare system is so huge that it, 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 it becomes almost inoperable. We exist outside of that to really connect people to resources. And uh, advocate. And advocate. Listen, so let's talk about that. Like if, if somebody wants to donate to Split Second Foundation, um, how do they go about doing it? And then tell us about how they, how they participate in the gala and what, what, what's going on there. So you can visit splitsecondfoundation.org um, and click the donate button. We've got a few of them on the page, especially on the home page. Um, we recommend that you do... Something that's that's minuscule to you, $10 a month, $20 a month, right? Because it means a lot to us. Um, now, as far as participating in the gala, we are also raffling off a Honda Accord. 
for wow. the gala. Um, so we have a link on the homepage for a $25 raffle ticket for this car. That raffle is going to go a far away for us. What if you want to attend the gala? How do you do, go about doing it? There's another button on the homepage as well for purchasing tickets to the gala and also a button if you want to sponsor. So, um, you know, and if anybody wants to reach out to me, my number is 504-430-9429. And give us, give us the, the website and, and any other contact information for a split second again, Mark. Yeah, please follow us on Instagram and all the social media channels. Our handle is Split Second Foundation, simple as that. Uh, the website is www.splitsecondfoundation.org. There's a, a short, impactful video showing you know more of what we're doing in the community. Uh, and you get a chance to hear from, from some of our members on what this space has meant to them. Um, email us at info at splitsecondfoundation.org. Uh, or again, or give us a call, 504-430-9429. Mark Raymond, I appreciate you coming out, having a conversation with us. We want to do everything we can to help you uh, push your organization and your, your life's mission uh, to the, the highest of heights. So thank you again. Uh, we look forward to bringing you back onto the show to talk a little bit more after the gala about some of the more details of, of what Split Second is doing. So thank you for being a, a part of Down by Law. Thank you, my brother, for having me. It's been, uh, it's been fun. We're going to do this uh, Absolutely. once a year. This least. is just like the conversation we have when we're just sitting around drinking beer and whatnot. Yep. We're going to keep it going. All right, guys, thank you for listening to another episode of Down by Law. We'll be back with you next week.